we're both privileged and obligated to worship our Heavenly Father. This morning, we have already sang songs of praise and honor to God. We have prayed a prayer of expressing our wishes and our desires before our Heavenly Father. We've taken time to commune with our Lord in the Lord's Supper to remember His body and His blood. And we have taken some time to be able to give as we have been prospered. And now for a few moments, I want us to continue in our worship to God as we take some time to consider a part of what God has said through his holy apostles and prophets. A couple of weeks ago, we began a series of lessons talking about the apostle John and how he revealed our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And John masterfully revealed our Savior. He was one of the closest of the Lord's apostles to him. He was able to portray our Lord in a way that perhaps others might not have been. He was able to reflect not only what Jesus did, but what he thought and how he considered his work. There's so many facets to Jesus as the Son of God. As you think about him, you have to think about his teaching. You have to think about his great example. You have to think about, for instance, the kind of things that he did that impacted people in their everyday lives. One of the most remarkable was his ability to work miracles. When Peter began his sermon in Acts chapter 2, he was trying to explain who Jesus was so that they would appreciate him as their Savior. In Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Men of Israel, hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves also know. You think about our Lord as these apostles presented him. They wanted people to know that Jesus worked miracles. He is a man of miracles. The first of these was the turning of water to wine in John chapter 2. If you don't already, would you keep your Bibles open there to John chapter 2, and we're going to study verses 1 through 11. We're going to observe three things in our lesson. The first one is the setting. We want to look at the wedding that Jesus attended and all the details with regards to that. We want to look at the sign that was a part of it, the turning, the water to wine, we often focus on the wrong part, but we need to focus correctly. And then we want to talk about the significance of it. To do that, let's begin by reading verses 1 through 11. And so if you'll have your Bibles, please turn there. If not, we'll have it on the screen for you. On the third day, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Now both Jesus and his disciples were invited to, to the wedding. And when they ran out of wine, 
the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were set there six water pots of stone according to the matter of the purification of the Jews, containing 20 or 30 gallons apiece. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. And they took it. When the master of the feast had tasted the water made to wine and did not know where it came from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man begins to set out the good wine, and when the guests have well drunk, then the inferior, you have kept the good wine until now. This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. For just a few minutes, let's explore some of the details of this setting. The first thing you'll notice, this is a wedding in Cana of Galilee. Cana was just a small village about four miles north of Nazareth. If you go into this area of Galilee, there are some hills and then there are some plains or valleys, if you will. To give you a little idea, if you look on a map, you can see just about in the center to the right, the Sea of Galilee. If you come a little past the center to the left and to the bottom, you'll see Cana and you'll see it setting on the hillside of a a plain that's right there. And then if you'll just move a little bit to the right, you'll notice Nazareth. So that's about four miles in distance there. Every time we go, we, we drive through the little village of Cana. It's not very big. In fact, not even very big today. Here's a photo of it back in the early 1900s. Gives you some kind of idea that it's just a small hillside village That's where Jesus turned the water to wine. Weddings were very elaborate events in the Bible. You know, today if you go to a wedding, you'll spend an hour, maybe two at the most. In fact, the ceremony usually doesn't last very long at all, but the whole event may just last a little while. But yet if you went to one in biblical times, many times it would last several days, sometimes up to a week long. They were very important events. For just a few minutes, let's explore, just through the gospel accounts, some of the teachings about weddings. If you go to Matthew chapter 22, there's the parable of the wedding feast. And I'm sure you're familiar with it, and it's with regards to the Pharisees. But I just want to draw out a few details from uh, just a few of those verses. For instance, verses 2 and 3. The kingdom of heaven is likened to a certain king who arranged a marriage for his son. First thing you observe is marriages were often arranged. 
It says, and sent out servants to call those who were invited to come to the wedding, and they were not willing to come. Invitations had already been sent, but now it's time for the feast to occur, and people are saying, I'm not coming. I've got other obligations, other things I want to do. If you drop down to verse 9, the king was not going to have a wedding without a number of guests there. That would be embarrassing. Can you imagine having a wedding planned, and you've spent all the money, you've had everything done, and then everybody you invited decided, I'm not going to show up. Well, what he does, he sends his servants out into the highways and byways and gathered together and they found both good and bad and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The second one that I think you might be aware of is found in Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. If you'll remember in verse 1, it says that this that kingdom of heaven is likened to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. You get a little bit of idea that uh, the events could happen at day or night, but in this case you have the groom who's going to be arriving at night and they have lamps, lights. Quite frequently if you'll attend a wedding today, there's candles, a ceremonious event. Verse 5, but while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. That tells you that this wedding was going to take place overnight and everybody's waiting for the bridegroom to arrive verse 10 and while they went to buy the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and the door was shut you get the picture that weddings were very elaborate events where you had something special today when the bride comes to the back of the the wedding hall you know everybody turns around to look but Even the arrival of the groom was something to be celebrated. When you go to Luke chapter 14 and verse 8, you read, When you are invited by anyone to a wedding, feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. When you went to sit at the feast, when you got ready to eat, there was even a sitting assignment based upon how how your status was. You didn't want to sit in someone else's seat and have to be asked, oh, you don't sit at the head table. You sit at the one in the corner over there. But of course, John, as he writes the book of Revelation, in Revelation chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, he talks about the wedding of the Lamb and he says, let us be glad and rejoice and give glory for the marriage of the Lamb has come and His wife has made herself ready. Verse 8, he explains that the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. And verse 9, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So you get the picture. Weddings were important in the Bible. On this occasion, though, the, the setting tells us they ran out of wine. You can compare that to the mother of the bride and the bride. If their reception is being held and they look and there's about 40 people still standing in line and the punch has run out. I don't know about you, but I know what most of the brides and mothers of the brides would say. Oh no. Be something of 
of great embarrassment to them. You see, in their day, it was a responsibility, though, of the groom's family to provide the feast. If you'll notice verse 9 in this context, it says, The master of the feast called the bridegroom. If you'll remember in the first illustration we used in Matthew 22, it was the king who gave a feast for his son, and so they were the ones responsible. Somewhere along the line, it changed from the groom to the bride's family being responsible for the reception. But the truth is, not only was this embarrassing, but if you read history, you realize that if you were not providing the kind of feast which was expected, you could even be sued legally. Because, number one, you were considered to be poor managers and no man would want to give his daughter to be married into a family of poor managers. You could also be sued because you had misrepresented your wealth. If you said, I would like for your daughter to marry my son, and we're a family of considerable means, we can feed a family, or we can feed a city of 500 people for a week. And then the food begins to run out, then there's been this misrepresentation of wealth. But now I want to talk about the sign. The sign's important. Look with me again at verse 11. This beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. The truth is, the signs were important. The signs were important because they demonstrated that Jesus was not an ordinary man. He had power that came from above. There's so many passages in the Gospel of John, there's just no way to look at them all. At least not in one sitting. You can spend time studying that, but for just a moment, I just want to refer to just a few of them. Look with me at John chapter 3, verse 2. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Nicodemus recognized the Lord's power because of what he did. John 4, verse 48 Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. They were people who needed signs. They needed these wonders. You get to chapter 6. The great multitude followed him because they saw the signs which he performed and those on those who were diseased. Verse 14, then those men, when they had seen the sign that Jesus did, said, truly this is the prophet who has come into the world. Verse 30, therefore they said to him, what sign will you perform that we may see it and believe in you? What work will you do? You go over to chapter 11, verse 47, then the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council together and said, what shall we do for this man works Many signs. Oh, you begin to say, I think I'm starting to get the picture here. 
This is just the very beginning of many miraculous works that Jesus will perform. Let me point out to you, it's not like a lot of the fake healers that you see on television. It's not as if you could come up and slap somebody on the head and say to them, I heal you of something that no one could ever see or know. Do you remember in Acts, Peter and John at the gate called beautiful, they healed a lame man? Do you remember in Acts chapter 4, verses 16 and 22, the significance of that? They said, what shall we do to these men? For indeed, a notable miracle has been done through them, is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. It's the kind of miracle that could be performed on a person that no one standing by watching it can say, well, they faked that one. In fact, you go down to verse 22, for the man was over 40 years old whom the miracle of healing had been performed. They knew this man. They'd seen this man. He had been at the gate called Beautiful and now a notable miracle has been performed. Let's return back to John chapter 2. Why did Mary approach Jesus with this issue? And why did Jesus respond to Mary in the way in which he did? So let's look at that for just a moment. Look again at verses 3 through 5. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does your concern have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now, folks, for just a minute, think about why did Mary come to Jesus? This was not Mary's wedding to take care of. This was not a family member that she would be responsible for providing the food for. That's the groom's responsibility. Why would she come to Jesus? I can tell you why. She knew what he could do. She knew his power. She knew that he could perform a miracle. If you will notice what is said specifically in verse 5. When she addresses the service, whatever he tells you to do, you do it. He has that power. He has that ability. But I know that when you look at this, you've got to say, well, is there anything in the statement of Jesus in this? He says, woman, what does your concern have to do with me? Literally is what to you to me? What responsibility do I bear with this? And then he makes a statement, my hour has not yet come. I could spend a lot of time talking to you about what's found in the early chapters of the book of Mark. How after Jesus performed a miracle, he would instruct those people by saying, go and tell no one. You don't tell them what I've done. And for many of us, you would think, if he's going to perform a miracle, why would he not want everybody to know about it? Jesus didn't do things haphazardly. 
everything was planned. God knew what was going to happen. Jesus knew what was going to happen. This is not the time. In fact, if you go over to John 7 and verse 6, as he speaks to his brothers, they're telling him, it's time to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles. Jesus said to him, my time has not yet come, but your time is always ready. I think what he's trying to say to them is, I've got plans. You don't have plans. You do whatever you want to whenever it comes. You go down to verse 30 in the same chapter. Therefore they sought to take him, but no one laid hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Chapter 8, verse 20. These words spoke Jesus in the treasury as he taught in the temple, and no one laid hands on him for his hour had not yet come. All of this was planned, and so he's saying to Mary, even though she knows his power, she knows his ability, woman, my hour has not yet come. This is not appropriate. This is not the time. Let's go back and focus again on a few more of the details. Six stone water pots. The New King James translates the firkins into gallons so we'll know exactly about how much each of these water pots will hold about 20 to 30 gallons each you think of little five gallon buckets you think of four to six of those you're going to have a stone water pot about this tall and they're going to be filled to the brim and say well what does it mean they're used for purification you remember Mark 7 when the disciples of Jesus were rebuked for not washing their hands? In verse 3, Mark tells us, he said, the, the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands in a special way. And then you get to verse 4 and he says, they have many other things like they receive in whole, like the washing of cups, pitchers, copper vessels, even couches, the bedding that they lie, lie upon. They had these Water pots outside that were used for purification's sake. Not for drinking, but for what we would call today like the Roman Catholic Church uses holy water. That's what this is used for. And so there's six of them. I don't know if you do a little math there, but if you each of them holds 20 to 30 gallons and there's six of them, 120 to 180 gallons. That's a lot of water turned to wine. And in fact, when you think about that, I think you have to observe some things. Number one, you have to observe that the master of the feast did not know. The bridegroom did not know. Because Jesus' hour was not yet come, verse 9 tells us, the servants who drew the water knew. So it appears that only the disciples and only those servants were aware of Jesus performing this miracle. What Jesus did was to provide the very best. You know, when the wine was taken to the master of the feast, he was surprised. He said, why have you brought or saved the best for the last? You always serve what's best and then whatever's left over. That's what you serve at the end. Let me make a very important point. Many people lose the importance of this sign because they're focusing on the wrong thing. 
Over the past few weeks in the Southern Standard, there's been several people who've made reference to, as well as others, to the turning of the water to wine as it relates to the vote on whether to have liquor stores and to sell wine in grocery stores. And everybody's like, oh, well, Jesus just turned water to wine. And they go to John 2, and that's what they focus on. They say, this this proves social drinking. When people do that, they miss the most important part of this. It's the sign. It's the miracle that he performed. It was the proof that he was the Son of God. But I can't let this pass without at least addressing that. There's at least some important things to note. Number one, the word wine in the Bible is not equivalent to our modern term. For instance, I saw this morning uh, one of the holiday songs that says, Don we now our gay apparel. When you hear, Don we now our gay apparel, do you think of a homosexual dressed up? You say, no, that's not what the word meant when it was writ- that song was written. I understand the distinction between that. Most people do not understand the distinction that the word wine in the Bible does not always mean this intoxicating, fermented drink. I can prove that to you at least through three passages, perhaps many more. In Isaiah 16, verse 10, he says, Nor treaders will tread out wine in the presses. While they were stomping out on the grapes and the grapes were flowing down that little channel to where they would collect it, it was called wine. It's still just plain grape juice at this point. In Isaiah 65, verse 8, as new wine is found in the cluster while the grapes are still on the vine and the juice is still inside the grape, it's called, it's called wine. In Joel 2.24, the threshing floors shall be full of wheat and vats overflow with new wine and oil. He's talking about blessings. He's talking about the harvest, the harvest of grain, that's going to be uh, the wheat. The harvest of the vintage, that's going to be the wine. The harvest of the olive trees will be the oil. You see, here's the problem. When you take a 21st century word and understanding and you take that to the Bible and you say, well, that's what it means. That's not always what it means. There are times in the Bible where wine does mean the fermented, intoxicating drink. There are times in the Bible where wine simply means the juice of the grape. And it's the context that tells you how it's being used. And it's a mistake for people to assume that when you read that, that you are reading it. Now, the second thing that people often mistake is they have this idea that these people back in the first century were absolutely ignorant of preservation techniques. I've heard more than one person say, but you know, they couldn't keep it fresh. Shortly after it was pressed out of the vintage, 
and they put it in a wine skin, it would automatically begin to ferment. And so everybody who drank wine drank some at least a little fermented. There's an excellent little book called Bible Wines by Patton. Excellent little book. And what he does not only is to talk about the various methods that are were used, but he also goes and quotes a number of the historical sources from those dates in which he was talking about and proves these things to be so. One of the most common was simply boiling it down to a syrup and then they would reconstitute it as needed. When you boil it, you kill the alcohol content. They also used another filtration method by which they removed the gluten and removing the gluten would prevent the fermentation process. Another was to seal it and seal out the oxygen. They used sulfur fumigation to do that. But then I often am asked, well, what about their milk? Did they drink all soured milk? No. They got it fresh, and that was the way many times they got their wine as well, fresh, pressed from the grape juice. Now let's talk further more about this, though. The Bible tells us Jesus did not sin. 1 Peter 2, 22, who did no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. 1 John 3, 5, and in him there was no sin. Had Jesus made 120 to 180 gallons of wine for people who they would suggest were already pretty tight, would have been to sin. Habakkuk 2.15 Woe to him who gives drink to his neighbor, pressing him to your bottle, even to make him drunk. It's inconceivable and inconsistent to suggest that Jesus would provide men that which the Bible condemns everywhere. Proverbs chapter 21, wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Galatians 5.21 mentions drunkenness, revelries, and the like. And I'd suggest to you, if you study the background of revelries, you will see that this involves feasting where a person becomes then intoxicated. Now very quickly, let's talk about the significance of this. What did God expect you and I to walk away from when we read and study this? What do you expect to see within the context? Number one, he approved of joy and happiness. Brother Randy and I were talking about earlier this morning about God laughing. Does God take joy? Does God take pride in being able to have happiness? And certainly he does. He didn't expect man to live an ascetic life where a person sits around and has no joy, no happiness whatsoever. In Matthew 11, verses 18 and 19, he contrasted what John the Baptist did. He said he came neither eating or drinking. You said he's got a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you said he's a glutton and a wine-bibber. Of course, that was a false charge. Romans 14, verse 17 makes clear that the kingdom of God's not eating and drinking. That's not what it's all about, but God doesn't prevent us. In fact, God allows us to have joy and happiness. 
Also, he approved of marriage and the festivities that go with it. The fact that the Lord attended this wedding feast, the fact that the Lord also used this as illustrations, meant that weddings were approved of God. In fact, Hebrews 13 verse 4 said, Let marriage be honorable among all. The most important part is this demonstrated that the Savior had a mighty power. He had authority over natural forces. Whether it was the wind and the waves that he could say, peace, be still, or whether it was the water he could turn to wine. He had authority over healing the sick that was diseased. He had authority over the demons he could cast them out. He had authority over death. He would raise Lazarus from the dead. Romans 1 and verse 4 says he was declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. The miracles of Jesus were important. They confirm our faith. They open the door for us to teach. And the bottom line is John the apostle the disciple whom Jesus loved wanted us to appreciate our Savior and the beginning of the miracles that he performed. You can be confident if you choose to make Jesus the Lord and Savior of your life and of your soul. If you're willing to believe in him as these disciples did according to verse 11, if you're willing to go from your belief to the repenting of your sins, the correcting of sins in your life, the confession of your faith of Jesus, and then be baptized. That act of baptism is a line of demarcation. Before it, you are not a servant of God. Afterward, you are now a child of God. What a wonderful privilege this morning it would be to see a new brother or a new sister added to the Lord's kingdom. If you are a child of God needing prayers, needing um, you've sinned and you need us to pray with you and for you, we'll be more than glad to do that this morning. Would you come as we stand together and sing?